0: want to finish what you started you came to the right place the that you came with you might have to part with depending on how this thing shakes Wabitosa,
1: Kenosha,
2: a- hello Northeast Wisconsin and thank you to the tens of listeners that we have on the new look podcast this week we're changing things up a bit and we're bringing you a special bonus episode of the podcast to examine An extremely important issue, which is how the coronavirus is impacting the dairy industry here in Northeast Wisconsin. In what was already a historically challenging environment for our dairy farmers, the coronavirus has only made things more difficult. And we're going to dive deep into this and uh, more issues with four people that I consider experts on the subject. Uh, A colleague of mine named GT Thompson who is a congressman from Pennsylvania and a senior senior member of the House Agriculture Committee. Uh, Karen Geffert, the executive director of the Governmental Relations Department at the Wisconsin Farm Bureau Federation. And John Jacobs, a dairy farmer right here in northeast Wisconsin and a friend. And finally, Chris Clayton, who is a representative from the Wisconsin DNR. And with the help of these four individuals, we're going to bring you a new look at Dairy in Wisconsin amidst coronavirus, and we're going to kick things off first with G.T. Thompson to talk to us about what actions Congress is taking to help our dairy farmers here in Wisconsin. We are very lucky to be joined by a great man, Glenn G.T. Thompson from Pennsylvania's 15th District. Did I get that right? That's correct. How long, Have you always been called G.T.? What, what uh, when did that nickname start and
0: stick? Well, it's my initials, Glenn Thompson. But I, I, the only reason I know this is because of some Christmas cards and birthday cards my aunt returned. Uh, up until my um, Glenn Thompson Jr., and up until I was one year old, my it, apparently as I looked at these cards, my parents wrote, signed them Glenn Mary and Jr., and then for <laughs> some reason. After that, they changed to Glen Mary and GT, and that has stuck. Obviously, it's uh, it's uh, that's what everybody knows me by, even on the on the House floor.
2: That's true. So, and the 15th district, where is that in relation to Pittsburgh? And give us a sense of the geography that you represent.
0: Sure. Well, there's 18 congressional seats in Pennsylvania. We have about 14 million citizens, and uh, my district actually is a quarter of the landmass. Uh, large rural district. My home is uh, near one of my uh, obviously uh, uh, one of my alma maters, uh, Great Land Grant University, Penn State. Uh, that's in the very center of the state, center county. Uh, but I go almost to Pittsburgh, uh, about 25 minutes from downtown Pittsburgh, and absolutely go up to the New York line. So it's a it's a great large rural school uh, congressional district.
2: So then you, I assume you're a Steelers fan. Would I be correct
0: in this assumption? My campaign colors are gold and black.
2: Okay, I so you're gonna have to help me remember. I think there was a Super Bowl somewhere around the 2010 2011 season. I can't quite remember who the Packers beat yeah, in what that was the Super Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, hey, we really appreciate it, and uh, GT really is a thought leader on ag in general, dairy in particular. So maybe talk, you know, I assume your district is experiencing some of the same things mine is right now, where, you know, we're already in a tough situation for dairy. Talk to us a little bit about the view from your district and how, you know, things are are on the
0: ground there. Well, I'll do that. But Mike, first of all, thanks for being a great member of Congress. Uh, I'm so proud to have you on the team. Um, You know, I know you're, uh, uh, I think this is your second term? Second uh, term. Represent the Wisconsin 8. Uh, dairy is a pretty appropriate uh, topic to talk with you. I know, I'm not sure where you are in with the last ag census I looked at, you were like number six out of all the congressional districts for, uh, you know, for dairy in the nation. And so that's just, I mean, it's just, uh, you got a lot of those dairy farmers, over 9,000 yeah. farms. And thanks. I know how hard you work for them. And thank you for what you do each and every day. Yeah, dairy's, uh, uh, you know, my district, uh, Pennsylvania's number one uh, industry is agriculture, and our number one commodity is is dairy. Uh, Dairy, like Wisconsin, we're we're big dairy states, Uh, and we're, unlike maybe some perhaps in California and and, uh, down in Florida, we're, you know, our, uh, you know, I think our farms are about the same size, uh, actually, a couple hundred acres, uh, enough to sustain probably the corn uh, alfalfa soybeans to be able to feed the cows and and uh, and and smaller to medium-sized dairy farms but we produce a, a lot of milk and uh, you know dairy's kind of fallen on some hard times uh, uh, sadly uh, a result of that I'll be honest with you is because of uh, uh, the the Democrats that I served with back in 2010 uh, not only the House Agriculture Committee where we tend to in a bipartisan way do good good things for farmers, including dairy, uh, but it was on the House Education and Labor Committee back then, and they demonized milk fat. You know, they made, uh, I may paraphrase just a bad take a license, but pretty much what they said is if you drank a glass of whole milk, you'd probably die of a heart attack, diabetes, and cancer all on the same day. Not sure what order, but that, that, that was just how bad they demonized milk fat. And they took that milk fat out of our schools. And when they did, they took all the nutrition and the flavor away from our kids. We've been cheating our kids uh, for now um, eight years, I guess, uh, of proper nutrition. And you know what? And because of that, we lost an entire generation of milk drinkers. And that has really impacted the the market demand for milk. I mean, kids will always weigh in with their parents on the, the grocery list and they're always going to weigh in on a beverage to buy, but ever since they started getting a bad school milk experience, they're not asking mom and dad to bring home that gallon of milk. Um, I will say in the middle of this coronavirus, uh, where 54% of meals were eaten eaten in restaurants before this, everybody's been forced back to the kitchen table, and I'm finding that whole milk sales are out the roof right now, and so maybe, I'm hoping if there's a any positive part of this virus experience, it is people will return and recognize that milk is a, it's just a super powerhouse of nutrients. And quite frankly, if you get it with it as a whole milk and milk fat, it tastes good. You know, uh, you know uh, we, we know that the science, and it was bad science they made your decision on back then. We know the science today shows that milk fat is, uh, number one, it can prevent, help prevent two forms of cancer. It helps cardiac health. A lot of our sports teams, including the Packers and the Steelers, will use it to rebuild their, the, you know, the trauma, uh, the bodies of those professional athletes of what they go through uh, in practice and in play. Um, there's just so many good parts to it. It's good for cardiac health. Actually, it's an important part of weight loss as well because it satisfies. Um, but, uh, but that's where we're at today. I think that largely is what has led up to this situation. Uh, obviously, in this virus is kind of compounded since, um, you know, milk that was uh, pack- packaging of milk. There's been a disruption in the supply chain, yeah. obviously, uh, and that's an issue right now. Most consumers do not want to buy half pints of milk, nor do they want to buy the mass, large quantities of milk that would be sold to college campuses or, or, or to restaurants and food services. And so we've had to, we've had to adjust the packaging a bit as well. Yeah.
2: Well, that was the the interesting thing that was happening in my district over the last month was you had this disparity where a lot of the grocery stores couldn't keep milk on the shelves or they were rationing milk, which upset a lot of people, particularly at the same time dairy farmers were being forced to dump milk because of oversupply. And those two things don't add up. But you start to think through the supply chains and that just-in-time delivery system where if you have a radical change in consumer behavior in terms of shopping patterns, of course it's going to disrupt, you know, the amount of milk that's on the shelf. I don't know if you saw something similar where you oh,
0: are. Yeah, absolutely. A shelf life. And we saw surges. Every time my, my governor would do a declaration of telling people, you know, give them 24 hour notice that you can't work anymore. Uh, you know, there was panic buying, uh, telling everybody they had to, all 67 counties had to shelter in place. Uh, telling every every I'm in Pennsylvania every Pennsylvanian that you know they have to wear a face mask if they go out. That resulted in panic buying, um, and in a bipartisan way, a good friend of ours, uh, former Bible study buddy of mine, Vice President Pence, you know, he made the announcement encouraging people to go to the grocery store less so to buy more, and that resulted in some uh, some panic buying. Sure. Um, and that that didn't help the supply chain as well. So. It is, I mean, milk is more popular than ever. Um, And I do think people are are going to establish a new relationship, a new love for, and a fondness for whole milk in particular. Uh, But that said, there's been a, that has contributed to a a disruption in the supply chain that, you know, that we are, we got to work with our processors to get them to look at different ways to package. Um, And, and unfortunately, because of the shelf life of the freshness of milk, that's why we, we saw the, we saw the dumping although I am so appreciative of the, the USDA and a rural man, um, risk management agency that stepped up and, and provided uh, for those uh, dairy farmers that, that had the foresight uh, to buy into the dairy revenue program or the or the uh, livestock gross margin program um, you know they they've announced that you know it's important for them to document the, the loss of milk that, that their processor directed them to dump um and then uh, you know to uh, uh so that uh, they're probably going to be able to to utilize those risk management insurance programs to to at least get um i think a significant portion of the value of that milk,
2: which is huge probably one of the bigger things that's happened to help dairy farmers because that was a program that we you know i would say modernized or revised in the last farm bill to make it more amenable to dairy farmers and th- so those that bought into it did pre-coronavirus and now you know, obviously, they're in a radically different situation, so allowing that flexibility hopefully will help them out. What about are there some other things you think we might be able to do as we get through this crisis to help out ag or, or dairy farmers? You know, uh, whether it's convincing USDA to buy more excess cheese and distribute that to food banks, things like that.
0: Yeah, and we have. Uh, Secretary Purdue has done a great job on. I'm a big fan of Sonny. Uh, uh, you got to love a, a Secretary of uh, Agriculture that's, uh, uh, you know, a former um, large animal veterinarian, uh, owner of an agribusinesses. Uh, uh, he's, uh, you know, a former governor of a, of a big agriculture state, Georgia, um, and, and he's doing a great job. He, he actually announced uh, most recently. Uh, the guidance for the money that, that you and I, through the CARES pro, uh, legislation, we appropriated uh, for agriculture. Uh, that included a total of $19 billion. Uh, Three billion of that is to be used for direct purchase of agriculture commodities. And right now, because of market disruptions, there's quite a few excess ones out there that we we could be helping our farmers out by purchasing. Uh, that rolls out as a matter of uh, $100,000 Or 100 million dollars per per month Um, uh, for 100 million for dairy, uh, a separate tranche for for meat, and then for for uh, specialty crops, Um, and so and those will all be donated to the great nutrition programs that we have. And USDA has has provided all kinds of flexibility with the nutrition programs, whether it's helping out for the WIC program for women, infants, and children whether it's a SNAP program, Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, what we used to call food stamps. Uh, And just most recently, they announced yesterday a 40% increase in in what food uh, SNAP benefits can receive during this time. Uh, The uh, congregate meals, uh, you know, basically support for our schools and others to prepare meals to distribute to families that have uh, disadvantaged families that have uh, children that normally would be on free and reduced meals. Uh, household disaster relief. I mean, there's just a lot of places as you're rolling out, and a lot of great nonprofits, churches, uh, uh, community action teams, uh, food banks, uh, uh, food kitchens. I mean, the infrastructure. Americans are amazing how they step step up in ordinary times, and they're really showing their ability to help neighbors in need during this, uh, you know, this extraordinary time. And then there is an additional 16. Uh, uh, billion uh, that's for direct support, and of that 2.9 billion is flagged for our dairy farmers. And so there will be a sign-up in the beginning of May. I don't know what form that's going to look at right now. Probably be through FSA, but but we really haven't gotten that kind of detailed and guidance yet from the from the Department of Agriculture. Uh, Secretary Purdue's goal, though, is to get that money out in the pockets of our dairy farm families uh, before the end of May. So between them participating in the Paycheck Protection Program, the uh, Economic Impact Disaster Loan and Grant Program, uh, just the, the money that they just got uh, into their uh, banking accounts uh, from Treasury, the 1200 or 2400 for married couple, plus the additional $500 for each dependent child, uh, this is just it's another resource to, to try to be able to keep these folks farming we can't afford to lose our family farms.
2: That's huge. I mean, it's the backbone of my district, and we've already seen, you know, consolidation for years, if not decades now. And, you know, obviously we're not going to go back to the the golden days of, you know, 10 cow dairies everywhere. But, you know, you want a diverse marketplace, You those family businesses. I mean, I, every day I meet someone who says, who started a different business, or is kicking butt in a different business, who says, I grew up working on a farm. I grew up working on a farm and that's why I learned hard work, innovation, et cetera, et cetera. So it really is critical. I imagine it's the same in your district.
0: It it is. And, you know, and those are all the measures for the, for the current crisis, which, which will get us through this and we will, we're, we're obviously going to beat this virus. You know it. uh, you know, this is a strong contagion, but America is stronger. And quite frankly, God's a whole lot bigger than all that. And so we'll, Mm. we'll get through this. Um, that said, I think there's things that we need to continue to work on. Uh, for example, there's a piece of legislation, I'm proud to be the sponsor, uh, and that is whole milk for healthy kids. Uh, we need to get that through the Education and Labor Committee. We need to get that through Congress and get it to President Trump's desk. It it restores the ability for our schools to have the option of serving our kids whole milk, uh, give them the best nutrition that's possible and the best flavor, the best milk experience. Uh, we have more other legislation that you know, makes it clear that um milk only comes from a mammal. Um and I, you know, uh you know, I, I love farmers who raise things like almonds and soybeans yeah. and, and I it's guess not it's milk. Milk. but it's not milk. It's not, it's a beverage. And so let's have some truth in advertising. Um I mean we are waiting on the FDA to uh, they were uh, they were supposed to make a ruling on that actually and they've been they've been slow to do that. I I will say uh, over a year ago when they asked for uh, uh, they put out the request for responses for public comments, uh, they kind of framed it to looked pretty good because they acknowledged that, that uh, families were being misled about the, uh, uh, how, how uh, the claims that uh, these beverages are just as healthy as, as milk is. And it's, and it's not. And they seem to admit that when they, when they asked for comments. So I, it would be really helpful if the FDA, and I know they got their hands full right now. Uh, yeah. But but they would actually come out with a ruling to say, you know, if it didn't come from a mammal, you, it's not milk. You know, it may be something you can sell, but let's call it what it is. It's, it's, a, it's a beverage uh, or it's nut juice, whatever you want to call it, uh, but it's not milk.
2: So once we get through this, and I agree we will get through this, we have to stop demonizing fluid milk consumption, particularly whole milk consumption and get that next generation to understand that milk is healthy. It's important. Um, I would imagine, however, there's going to be limits to domestically what we can do. And that part of the solution long-term for dairy is opening up those new markets and not just for milk, but for, for cheese, for whey, for all sorts of fancy right. products. Yeah. Trade is a huge part of this, right?
0: You bet. You bet. Especially for States like, especially Wisconsin, uh, northern tier states, Pennsylvania. I mean, we still have New York between us and the Canadian border. But, um, you know, what uh, Canada tried to do with their their class six, class seven uh, uh, milk system, which was really just protectionism. You know, they created this ultra filtered milk category uh, to really to prevent the, uh, us continuing to export milk into Canada. And I was very proud of President Trump um, with U.S mca that trade agreement that's been signed you know the last thing he held out on before he gave his approval over a year ago was dairy because he was standing up for america's dairy farm families and um and the us mca corrects that and that's that's going to be a big difference and also what canada was doing it was it was flooding third world countries with some of its uh excess uh, its whey its proteins uh uh powdered milk You know, the things that the United States and our dairy farmers used to be able to sell into these other third world countries. And so those markets will be back. Um, I know that there's work uh, as we've looked at China, even with today's technology, you know, to be able to export uh, not just cheese, but other forms of of dairy products into, you know, Europe and and Asia and different places. So uh, it it is kind of sad. Uh, There was We struggled for so long. And there was this light at the end of the tunnel per hundredweight prices were coming up. We had all this promising trade and then this virus hit. And then as a result of the virus, we had, uh, you know, we, we had governors that made decisions, uh, you know, the most of my, I, I, I guess were necessary decisions to shut down our economy and close our schools and close our restaurants. And, and so, uh, but I'm still optimistic. I, I think dairy's, uh, um, uh, yeah, we're not going to return a day to where we have uh, farms with just a handful of cows, uh, but I think the average size farms that we have in Wisconsin, certainly we have in Pennsylvania, I think there's a viable future for those. Those small to medium-sized farms, to me, that rec- uh, that represents food security. Yeah, uh, you know, if you, you if you're running a ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand head dairy operation, boy, God bless you. First of all, that's a huge undertaking. But if you get one animal virus on that farm, it could be just, it might not even be the cows, it could be that family dog, I guess. You know, technically you're quarantined and you've got to dump all that milk, you've lost your market. And those processors that rely on those single supply, uh, ultra huge dairies are, I, I think they have a business plan that puts them at risk today, given how these viruses now travel. And so that's why I'm really a huge supporter of small and medium-sized dairy operations. I think they represent food security for America.
2: Well, so interesting that I think that, that issue of food security you rightly bring up. I think what we're going to learn when the virus settles too is how important it is that we've invested in food self-sufficiency in the United States and why that same approach is going to be necessary in other areas like medical devices, pharmaceuticals certain advanced telecommunication and defense equipment. I mean, the fact is, you know, we have outsourced so much of our supply chain to China and other countries. And I just, crises like this, I think, suggest that that's not always a good idea, right? We can't make everything in America, you know, trade brings efficiencies, but there's going to have to be some industries where we try and onshore that production and manufacturing back to the U.S.,
0: yeah, I agree. You know, for the uh, for President Trump's critics, um, you know, obviously some people were very critical about what the president tried to do in terms of trade and putting America first, recognizing that trade is a reciprocal relationship. So it's not like he wanted it all manufactured here. When you're involved in trade, that means your willingness to purchase sure. in some, some equity, some fairness, some level playing field. Uh, I think the president was ahead of his time. And I think this you know, I think, I do think this coronavirus really makes that point, uh, that there are some things strategically in particular that we need to reshore here. Um, And we don't ever want to be in a position where we're, you know, we'll always use some trade to purchase some food stuff, obviously, uh, from other places. But I don't think we ever want to be in a position where the majority of our nutrition is dependent on another country.
2: 100%. So just in the few minutes we have left, I want to go back to your background. So Fun fact about UGT, you spent about 30 years doing uh, professional uh, counseling. Would that be the, the best way to describe it? or yeah, how, uh, healthcare, yeah.
0: services healthcare services rehabilitation. Yeah, services. Yeah, I was a therapist, a rehab services manager, a manager in rural hospitals. Uh, yeah, those, uh, that's basically how I made my living was serving others in nonprofit community healthcare settings.
2: So I would imagine both just in terms of physical and mental health in this crisis, with so many people that are isolated, they may not have a robust support network. Um, you know, we already saw some troubling mental health statistics in the agriculture community. I'd just be curious to get your take, given your unique background on that, and just kind of what people can do to stay healthy, you know, to, as we have to stay shut down or quasi shut down for a little bit longer.
0: Yeah, well, I think part of it is just staying active. Um, obviously, I mean, if we have to social distance, that doesn't mean that we have to be uh, – Passive. I I think it's part of of overcoming, um, uh, you know, sort of the 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 isolation, and and I think there's an anxiety and even a fear that's out there because this is really like our very first social media virus. Yeah, you know, uh, know, it wasn't too many years ago we had H1N1 that took a lot of lives, uh, but most people didn't know it existed if it didn't impact them. When I say H1N1, most people think I'm talking about bingo. You know, it's, uh, and then, uh, and so this is the very first virus that made the social media platform. And I think this is really feeding a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. And if there's something I've learned a long time ago is that, um, you know, that plus, uh, you know, economic health has a direct correlation to physical health. Because if you're worried about your business, you're worried about your farm, uh, you're worried about your ability, your job, your will, your ability to support your family and feed yourselves, that is creating a stress that's pretty hard on the immune system and on the body. Uh, and with the coronavirus, it's, it's it can be fatal because, you know, uh, it's your immune system is the only thing you have to, if you happen exactly. to be unlucky enough to, to contract this contagion. Uh, that's why it's people with the pre-existing conditions that have weakened immune systems are the ones that... That tend to sadly succumb to this, and so, so I think uh, you know. Obviously, staying active, uh, you know, as the weather is nice now most places. Although we had snow here two days ago in Pennsylvania, (laughs) you may have some snow up in Wisconsin at some point as well. Still, you know, but getting out, getting some fresh air, you can do that and still protect yourself with social distancing. You know, physical activity that helps helps those endorphins. uh, You know, and endorphins is what you make you feel good and and keeps you motivated, keeps you positive, And, and I think we probably need that more than ever right now, obviously eating well. And I would certainly recommend at least three glasses of good cold whole milk each and every day. There
2: you go. There you I go. A,
0: to, uh, uh, I know the nutrients in that will help strengthen your, your body and your immune system will, will help keep you well.
2: I love that. So two final quick questions. So I, it has been said that you for the last five years have been the number one speaker on the house floor uh, i'm not surprised given how hard you work i will admit i'm a little surprised how did you possibly
0: beat louis Gomert in that <laughs> distinction well i uh, here's the thing i uh, i i have uh i am the number one speaker from the standpoint i speak on the house floor more days than i have for at least five years of any other member of congress but i'm not the most long-winded
2: Ah, okay. So in terms of total time, there might be a different measure. Okay. Yeah, in ter- ah. terms
0: of total time, it may be somebody else. I I learned a long time ago in public service, it's not uh, how long you talk; it's it's what you say that's most important.
2: Or what you don't. At some point, you know. Uh, it's true. Yeah. yeah there's, um, there's
0: some real wisdom in that. One. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, so final question: You are also a distinguished Eagle Scout, correct? Uh, uh, yes. I- I, I get, I go to a lot of the Eagle Scout uh, ceremonies and it's incredible. These kids really just blow you away. I mean, what advice would you have for that, that young kid from Northeast Wisconsin who's thinking about, you know, whether or not to to try for his Eagle and and what impact that had on you?
0: Well, uh, probably uh, scouting defines me better or more than anything else I've done in my life. To tell you the truth, uh, you know, to belong to a, uh, a youth organization, um, and I and I, I continue to serve as a leader. I'm actually a board member of the National Eagle Scout Association. A member, uh, I'm a merit-based counselor. I've actually been doing uh, uh, counseling citizenship in the nation over Zoom with uh, scouts awesome. uh, during these past couple of weeks. I got four classes coming up next week in the evening. I'm going to do you know for kids in my council. Uh, I've done that for kids in other scout councils. Uh, you know, it, you know, scouting is a great organization. It, it, some people say it's old-fashioned. Uh, to me, it's more needed today than ever with what our kids have to deal with. You know, it's a youth organization that's dedicated to God. It's dedicated to uh, service to God, service to country, service to others, and just uh, making sure that you uh, are uh, do your personal best. You know, you put your best effort forward. And for the, any kids out there, any youth are involved, uh, boys or girls. At this point, you know, I, I think it's a it's a great leadership development experience, and it brings out the best in youth. And and quite frankly, I encourage them to finish their Eagle Trail. Well, uh, there's a saying we have: once an Eagle Scout, always an Eagle Scout. Uh, it has certainly it helped me in getting my very first job uh, as an 18 year old, and uh, um, and it it has helped me. Uh, in any job I've ever done, including serving as a, a member of the United States House of Representatives.
2: Well, very wise words to end on and to live by from G.T. Thompson. G.T., thank you so much for taking the time, and thanks for your, your hard work and your example of service.
0: My pleasure, brother. Uh, you be well, stay healthy, and, uh, and thank you to all those con- all those citizens of Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District that has sent you to Washington. You're a great colleague.
2: <laughs> thank you. That was great. Despite being a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, I'm very grateful for GT's insight and look forward to continuing to work with him on this issue in Congress. As we just heard, we're taking considerable action at the federal level to help our farmers, but let's focus in on Wisconsin a bit more and get an update from Karen Geffert with the Wisconsin Farm Bureau and how this is playing out right in our own backyard. We are very... Lucky and thankful to be joined by Karen Geffert. Karen is the Executive Director of Governmental Relations for the Wisconsin Farm Bureau Federation. Uh, and Garen, Karen got her first taste of agriculture, if I'm getting this correctly, raising rabbits and poultry uh, as a member of 4 H in Burlington, Wisconsin. Is that correct?
3: That's right.
2: You're a Wisconsin native with true ag roots, going back to 4
3: H. Well, 4-H. I don't know if rabbits and poultry is exactly what we call uh, production ag roots, but it definitely was how I got my start.
2: And so you spent some time working in the poultry industry in Arkansas, and then you returned to Wisconsin where you taught high school uh, agriculture at Janesville Parker High School. Is that correct? For two years before joining the Farm Bureau? Yes. Janesville. Did you ever run into Paul Ryan down in Janesville?
3: Uh, Yeah. Yeah, sure did.
2: He's all over the place. He used to be my mom's uh, member of Congress. My own mom voted for Paul Ryan, not for me, because she wasn't in my district. Um, Okay, so, Karen, thank you so much for for joining us for a few minutes here. And, you know, I think, you know, we went into the coronavirus crisis understanding that, at least for the last few years, these were hard times for dairy, right? Milk prices had, had been persistently low. And now to add on to that, we have all the complications of coronavirus disruptions in supply chain and we're seeing these stories of milk dumping across the state and the country. What in your opinion is the primary practice of dumping and how should we think about that in the context of the broader uh, struggles that the dairy industry was having?
3: Sure. Um, Well, I would say right now is probably not the time that you would want to be a dairy farmer. Um, Dairy farmers are going through, have gone through five years of really, really tough uh, situation with low prices, um, a lot of milk on the market. We've had some terrible weather last year, and so now to uh, add a sixth year of really remarkable Uh, economic situation, we have um, restaurants and the food industry that have shut down and people aren't visiting those establishments. And in Wisconsin, 90% of our milk goes to make cheese and approximately half of that cheese goes into the retail industry. So if you think that restaurants aren't open or they're at least not serving the same kind of constituencies that they used to, we have a lot of cheese that used to be produced that was had a place to go that now doesn't. Um, retailers, processors can send some of that into cold storage, but the problem is that we had quite a bit of cheese and product in cold storage to begin with, so there's only so much room where we have the capacity to store that. So what's happening is that processors, one, are facing a challenge with labor. Um, labor shortage is uh, causing a reduction in the amount of uh, cheese that's being produced from milk and then there isn't enough uh movement of that cheese that's in cold storage to keep producing at the rate we were at so that's why we start we are starting to see or have seen over the last couple of weeks some stories about dairy farmers dumping their milk and it's a really unfortunate situation Um, many of those farmers some of those farmers are still being Paid for that milk, um, but some are not. So we've got we've got dairy farmers who can't just turn a cow on and off. That cow milks, uh, she milks multiple times a day every day. So they're trying to figure out how to how to come to grips with the new uh, economic norm that they're facing.
2: Sure, sure. So think it, we should think about this mostly as a story about cheese and less about fluid milk because I do think there's been some disconnect where, in certain grocery stores, because of of radical change in consumer behavior during the shutdown, you know there hasn't been milk on the shelves, and in some cases the grocery stores has have been rationing the supply of milk. You know, which obviously doesn't add up at a time we're dumping. But this is primarily the biggest impact is on cheese in Wisconsin, correct?
3: Right. So if you think about how milk moves through the supply chain, um, processors are set up to either uh, make some sort of dairy product like cheese or yogurt or butter, or they're set up to, to dry uh, powdered whey or bottle milk into fluid milk. And that might go into uh, small half pint cartons that go to schools, that might go into your half gallon and gallon jugs that go to the grocery store. But that requires a, a tremendous amount of uh, equipment and that results in tremendous investment. So when we think about how consumers have changed their purchasing Uh, practices. Um, They're not eating at a restaurant and using that cheese or the, the butter or the milk that goes into whatever food product they're consuming, but they're looking at purchasing gallons of milk and blocks of cheese from the grocery store, and our production system isn't quite set up to handle that. There is no shortage of milk, but the capacity of those processors to bottle that milk Um, there's plenty of milk, but they don't have the labor and they don't have the time and they don't have the capacity. Many times we're hearing um, it's a supply issue. Think about a gallon jug of milk. We have to make sure we have those jugs. We have to make sure we have the labels that go on those jugs and also the caps that go on the top of those jugs. All of those things play into into practice on why we're seeing this challenge for reducing the amount of gallons of milk in grocery stores there is no shortage of milk it's just how we're able to do that so and we have been encouraging uh retail vendors to re eliminate that restriction on how many gallons of milk consumers can purchase and we're seeing a good turnaround in that
2: that's great uh so uh Talk to me a little bit about obviously uh, the governor has extended the safer at home order. you know this is a subject of, of intense debate, but just on a practical level, not a political level, how does the 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 safer at home order, the Wisconsin shutdown affect our farmers here in Wisconsin?
3: um it affects all of them um, you know with uh, not being able to have our, our retail industry back up and running a tremendous amount of, let's say potatoes, a tremendous amount of Wisconsin's potatoes go into chipping, so if we don't have, and french fries, and if we don't have restaurants making french fries, we don't have a place for our potatoes to go, Mm -hmm. so uh, the the expansion of the safer at home order is really, uh, really difficult for our farmers, Um, and you know, our, especially our livestock farmers really understand um, herd health and immunity, and they understand the practices that are being put in place, but it definitely doesn't help their financial bottom line for their farms.
2: Sure, sure. Um, you know, and, and obviously, related to the first thing we talked about, if if people aren't going to restaurants in the same way, and their, their patterns of consumption change dramatically, it's going to have an impact. Um, you know, I wonder too, I mean, obviously we saw even if you're a dairy farmer, you could be growing soybeans, right? It could be 30% of your agronomy business. So to the extent relations between the United States and China get worse, you know, you could have things that we sell to China, like soybeans get caught in that crossfire too. So there's a whole host of secondary and tertiary effects in this thing. Um, But one thing we've in Congress proposed, uh, and this past Friday we've had some success on USDA announced that money that we provided to them via the CARES Act, there was about $9.5 billion that would go directly to aid dairy, cattle, and hog farmers impacted by coronavirus. We're still awaiting the details on this, but hopefully our, you know, the thought was they could purchase some excess cheese, distribute that to food banks. Talk to me about, you know, your view of that idea and how do you think these dollars can best help Wisconsin farmers?
3: so there's two um, two main ways in which the money's going to be spent. Some of that money is going to be uh, given directly to farmers to help with the change in the huge uh, change in commodity prices that they 've experienced since covid nineteen um, and then the other piece is going to be to purchase some of those products that are sitting there, like I mentioned in the dairy situation in cold storage so uh, if we talk about how those commodity purchases are going to work, I think it's a great thing it 's going to help those people who we really see are in need, um, who have lost their jobs, who maybe don't have some sort of a financial emergency fund, who are really looking for good quality Wisconsin uh, agricultural products that uh, feed their families. So we, we love as farmers to see that happening. Um, and to whatever entity it is that that needs it. Uh, and that's going to help move some of that product out of cold storage or out of storage in general and get it to the people who really need it most during this time. So we think that's a great thing. It will also have a trickle down effect where it allows our processors to then produce more of that product. So if we move cheese and we send it to food banks, then that frees up some of the cold storage so that our processors can make more cheese so that our dairy farmers can sell their milk to the processor. So it is a It's a chain when we talk about that food supply chain. So it's great and it benefits everyone to do that, those bulk commodity buys. Um, And then the direct aid to farmers. um, You know, farmers are the last link in the the process when it comes to selling their product. Um, When there are new environmental regulations that are put in place, farmers have to figure out a way to accomplish those regulations, whatever they might be, Uh, and and still not get any additional money for their product. So farmers continue to be asked to do more and more, and they don't get to set a price for their product, where if you're running most small businesses, you can say, well, here's what the market demands. You know, I might be able to uh, uh, get a profit of 10% or whatever it is on the product I'm selling. Farmers, for the most part, unless they're a niche market, many times have to take what the commodity exchanges uh, provide for their Product. There are some tools that are able to be used by farmers, but um, we our farmers right now are left to the to the whim of the market for the most part, and the markets have plummeted now that we have this COVID nineteen situation in place.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think I mean this is my own view, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, we hope the nine point five billion helps. There's a lot of support we're trying to provide in Congress to people directly affected, but you know, there are limits to the. You know, band aid you can put on the wound for lack of a better image uh, if we stay shut down. I mean, our supply chains are so complicated. You know, we the, the market is so profoundly disrupted. So the hope is that we can find a responsible way to open back up here in Wisconsin and nationally as quickly as possible. Again, being responsible about it, following the data, but you know, because in my view, is there's just aren't enough federal dollars to print to cover the cost of staying shut down. But I'd be curious, I mean, let's project. For that we get to that day, right? We're out of this crisis, you know, we're no longer having to deal with coronavirus. You know, as as I sort of said at the beginning, you know, obviously the dairy industry was going through tough times prior to this, um, prior to coronavirus. What are some bigger picture ideas or policies you think we could focus on to help sustain or, or rebuild our healthy agricultural environment here in Wisconsin?
3: You know, that's a tough uh, question to answer right now because we have no idea exactly how we're going to come out of this. Um, I imagine, and the the conversations we've been having with farmers is that they are really struggling and many of them don't know how they're going to, they've got bills unpaid. Um, how are, what is the market going to look like in, in a month to two months to three months? Many of those uh, answers when they come are going are going to give a picture for many of our farmers of how they run their business or how they don't run their business. So we're going to have, uh, I think, a tremendous uh, fallout of multi-generational farms who unfortunately are not able to financially keep farming. And that is a devastating thing. Um, Wisconsin and the United States is incredibly fortunate. And I think many consumers don't understand how fortunate we are to have a safe and very, um, a uh, very homegrown food system that we don't have to worry about our food security and we take think- it for
2: granted. Right. I mean, you, just, you can walk into a grocery store and just assume everything you're eating is safe. Right.
3: And I think that one of the things that maybe the the best thing that could come out of this situation um, and I say best in a very tongue in cheek way is that consumers really do get an idea of how important the, the American farmer is and how fortunate we are that we don't as Americans go hungry most of the time and they, we can go to the grocery store and the, the shelves are, are full. We don't have that food insecurity that some other countries do. So we have a lot of uh, pieces to the puzzle and questions about what those puzzle, puzzle pieces are going to look like before we can start strategizing on what the policy needs to be moving forward.
2: Well, I think that's one thing I've, I've struggled with is you, you have seen consolidation in the industry among farms for years now, right? That sort of, golden age of the the 50 cow dairy you know is no longer the norm but it's it's sort of hard to think about how much of that is just driven by natural market efficiencies right and you know bigger dairies being able to you know uh you know have more efficient operations and therefore it's harder for the smaller dairies to you know survive if their marginal profit gets lower and lower but to what extent is policy itself driving that consolidation is regulatory complexity hurting the small guy versus the big guy. I'd be lying if I said I had an easy answer to it, but it's certainly, you know, you don't want, you know, five dairies to control everything, right? You want a healthy ecosystem, natural competition and things like that. And ensuring that for years to come is going to be a very difficult and complicated thing.
3: It is. And, you know, Wisconsin, if we're going to take um, one industry in particular, we're, we're America's dairyland. And so when we look at the snapshot and the, the breadth of dairies in Wisconsin, we have the most diverse um, breadth of dairies from uh, size and practice uh, of dairies. We have the small guys that have maybe a, a handful, 20, 30 cows, and we've got Um, multiple thousand cow dairies in Wisconsin and so that is pretty unique uh, when we look at the dairy industry and so um, I think that that puts us in a very unique position that we and the Wisconsin Farm Bureau advocate for a whole range of sizes of uh, farmers um, who do things and practices really differently. So I think probably the biggest thing that we're gonna have to see moving forward as we start to come out of this is how do we come back from, uh, from restaurants and retailers? How many of those restaurants go out of business and what does that mean for our supply chain? Sure. And, uh, and so we're going to really have to look at how we balance supply of our product versus demand of our product. And so that's going to be a really large conversation that has to be had and, and um, some of the free market will take care of that but there will also need to be some conversation about policies that help to drive some of that balance.
2: That's great. So what can, what do you think individual Wisconsinites can do, right? You know, uh, just on a daily basis in order to help the industry out in these tough times.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you know a farmer in Wisconsin, reach out to them, send them, a, don't go visit, <laughs> reach out to them, send a text, a phone call, an email, check on them, see how they're doing. Farmers are really stressed. Um, yeah. They're stressed. It's springtime. They're really busy. trying to figure out do we plant corn this year or do we plant something else because can i afford the cost of a bag of seed corn to plant in my field is what is the commodity price going to be when we harvest it should i plant something else um they're they're looking at trying their equipment breaks and they don't know how they're going to pay the bill to fix it so reach out to a farmer let them know that you're thinking about them offer to to do something nice for them send them a gift card um and then the other thing is go to the grocery store and buy something that says Wisconsin on it um, buy some dairy products that have a 55 on the on the label that means that that product is is produced and processed in Wisconsin so go buy some Wisconsin dairy products some Wisconsin onions or potatoes uh, and support Wisconsin's um, agricultural industry
2: that is great advice don't just buy dairy make sure you're buying Wisconsin dairy Wisconsin products look for the 55. Uh, final question. So where are we, where are we talking to you right now? Are you, can you give us a peek behind the curtain here? Is this, I'm in my basement. Are you in your basement here?
3: It's very glamorous. Yes. I get yeah. to be in the basement. Um, yes. Yeah, so I put my barn door behind, but it's if very look, nice. My feelings unfinished.
2: <laughs> Same with mine.
3: Yes. And then, um, my daughters have their office and playroom. So we're, we're Barbie central down here. If we look oh, wow. here, yeah. so well, I don't have
2: a, I don't have a playroom. Uh,
3: our There's first child time.
2: doesn't arrive for two months and we don't know if it's a boy or a girl. So we haven't been able to invest in, in Barbies or not yet. Well,
3: congratulations. So, That's I'm exciting.
2: Sure, well, I'm sure soon enough, my basement will look more like that. So
3: yes. So, Karen, no
2: this- yeah. Thank you so much for joining us and for lending your insight. And thanks for all the work you do on behalf of Wisconsin farmers. We really appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having me on. And thanks for giving me a chance to talk about our, our Wisconsin farmers.
2: Great. Thank you. That was an important update from Karen, and we certainly are lucky to have her working on behalf of Wisconsin's farmers. So with Karen, we got a bird's eye view of what's happening at the state level, but let's zoom in even closer to our district in Northeast Wisconsin and talk with John Jacobs, a dairy farmer who is an essential worker in this crisis and is on the ground working every day during this public health crisis. My interview with John Jacobs the fourth is next we are honored privileged to be joined by john jacobs the fourth how many jacobs are there let's start with that i mean it's hard to keep keep you guys separated in my phone there's so many jacobs with a lot of different numbers
4: well the good news is i don't think you're calling my son who's the fifth but
2: uh, wow
4: there's my dad who's the third myself and my son so there's, there's certainly enough, uh, enough in the Rolodex right now, and, and we'll see where that takes us in the future.
2: So did you ever have like a cool nickname growing up like Quattro or something related to the fourth?
4: No, I, had, I did have a bunch of nicknames, not many of which we want to talk about. Uh, <laughs> but, but my dad called me Jack when I was growing up, so.
2: Jack, why? Yeah. just yeah. Just because it's kind of like John?
4: I, yeah, it's, I think Jack's been a nickname for for John for generations in different uh, different cultures and whatnot. So I don't know. That's just what it was when wow. I was growing up. But as as you become a uh, we're not we're gonna phrase this gently a semi professional, not a professional. You probably have to go by your your real name at some point.
2: So. Well, your father is a smart man, so far be it, a very smart man. Far be it for me to disagree with his choice of nicknames for you. So tell us about the Jacobs clan, how you uh, came to the dairy industry, and what you guys do at Green Valley.
4: Sure. So it's it's kind of a neat story. We were not in the dairy industry prior to 2000. Um, My father, John, had gone out and saw what was going on in California and the revolutionizing of the dairy industry and decided that with uh, a land base that we had here in Wisconsin that he would like to give it a try. And and so him and my uncle Mark um, did that together uh, back in the year 2000. And we've evolved from there, um, from a variety of different parts of our operation, dairy, agronomy and beef. And, you know, we just try to, try to do what's right, try to do what's right for the environment, what's right for the people. Um, We're uh, pretty focused on environmental sustainability and and take those initiatives and that responsibility very seriously in all the decisions that we make.
2: So you personally, did you always know once your, your dad went into the dairy business that you would follow in his footsteps and be part of the family business or how did that sort of evolve for you personally?
4: so i think my dad would tell you that 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 there was zero intentions of of me or any of his sons for that matter coming into the business and so um our our business is comprised of my, my father john my uncle mark and then myself and my two younger brothers joe and paul and he would tell you that none of his sons had any interest in agriculture at that time as we were growing up um and so those interests just kind of evolved as the business evolved and, and I had no intentions of being involved in, in, our, in our family business as I was growing up and went to college, uh, got a good job after college, was doing some really good things and saw what was going on and had some really good and tough conversations about what the future looks like. And, and so after, the, after about 2007, 2008, um, it became apparent that all three of us of uh, my dad's children were going to be in the business and we found our different niches and in our different ways to be able to work together in our different areas of expertise and took it from there.
2: That's awesome. Okay so help us understand for the uninitiated what is going on in the dairy industry right now and by that I mean I, I tell me if you disagree with this but it's been a tough kind of stretch your years. The last few years have been tough for dairy, milk prices have been low. Just give us a sense at the broadest level of what's kind of driving that and and where you see the industry, where it was prior to coronavirus. So
4: I think prior to coronavirus, um, you know, there were some tough years. Many in the industry would tell you that there was a three, four or five year stretch um, of not a lot of profitability and uh, the fortunate thing is leading into 2020 uh, i think the dairy economy was looking very strong and there was going to be a lot of healing for a lot of different family businesses and family dairies in the country and 2020 was going to be a pretty good year Um, the futures prices reflected that um, the input costs reflected that and so it was uh, it was very optimistic and um, you know of course then COVID-19 hit and, um, you, you know, you, you slowly evolve and it was every day you're kind of waking up into a new world and, and adjusting on the fly and, and making changes as you go. So things have, things have definitely changed more than I could have ever imagined since the first words were spoken of coronavirus. But, um, you, you know, 2020, I think most people would tell you was looking pretty good. For the industry.
2: And then coronavirus hit. But just uh, in terms of macro trends here, would it be fair to say that, you know, people in general are drinking a little bit less fluid milk, but demand for cheese is high, products like, you know, demand for whey is high. Just give us a sense of kind of in terms of the international market, what are the big trends out there?
4: Sure. So prior to to COVID, um, you know, there's been 30 years or more of a decline in fluid milk consumption. And, and there's been a number of initiatives over the years to try and change that. And when you look at it, it's a difficult it's, it's a difficult space. There's more than 30,000 SKUs that could be in a grocery store or convenience store's uh, uh, Rolodex in terms of, of different uh, beverage products. So the fluid milk consumption has been really challenged by all kinds of different energy drinks for or bottled water, as an example, something as simple as that, and how convenient that is to pick up now. So food milk consumption continued to decline for a number of, of decades now. As far as consumption of specialty cheese products, um, uh, mozzarella cheese, so for example, mozzarella cheese has been a very strong uh, performer in the dairy sector for many many years now with frozen pizzas um or (laughs) or restaurant pizzas for that matter whey demand is generally pretty strong internationally as we adjust to different criteria of what they're looking for so overall the prospect for dairy consumption of of the protein uh, provided by dairy products was is strong and quite honestly we are a protein deficient world and when you're a protein deficient world um, you know, there's always going to be a demand for it. So now it's a matter of how do we adapt as an industry to develop products that are palatable to consumers and get those products outside of the country when needed, because we certainly have enough dairy product to meet our demand internally in the U S.
1: So,
2: so we think about, you know, we have to be opening markets abroad so that Wisconsin dairy farmers can sell their product around the world. Um, what about? I mean, we we we. The other thing we've seen in the industry is a lot of consolidation. I think it'd be fair to say. You know, the smaller dairies seem to be disappearing. We've lost a lot in recent years. To what extent should we just think about that as natural market efficiency, or is there something else going on there?
4: Um, well, I certainly think that that's just the natural evolution of most industries. But we can't dismiss the fact that there is a need and a demand for all sizes and scales of operation and i think um, a large dairy today may maybe in 10 or 20 years may be a small dairy but i would always say that there is a need for for all sides of operations and the consumer will demand different products from the dairy industry so um, there's a fit for everybody and i think the the Darwinistic concept or aspect to it is um, that it, it does come down to some some scales of size and efficiency. Um, but uh, there's there's I don't want to see anybody in our industry go out of business, yeah. regardless of size and regardless of the circumstances, right? Whether it's COVID nineteen or or some other market demands or some decisions or or Um, growth prospects that that doom somebody but ultimately I think that the dairy industry like like most other industries most other individuals and like our country evolve and when you evolve you have to adapt and and so um, the ones that that are successful regardless of size um, are successful because they do adapt and they do change their practices and try and move the needle forward
2: yeah so I think the risk is that the coronavirus slowdown, shutdown could exacerbate that trend of consolidation because you imagine that the smaller farms may not have a lot of capital on hand to weather a storm. Are there certain things you think make sense for helping small, medium, large-sized dairies weather this current crisis and then would T.S. up to really do well and, and come out of this stronger? I know we've talked about uh, having USDA use some of the money we've given it to buy excess cheese out there. Um, you know, you just hate to see the videos of farmers having to dump their product. What makes sense to you in terms of ways we can mitigate the short-term impacts of this crisis and then open back up?
4: Well, I, I, you know, I applaud Congress for um, being able to accomplish the, the relief packages. And the USDA has announced that there's $2.9 billion available for dairy. Um, and there's, there's certainly a difference between what's fair and equitable. And, and I think that's where, um, where you're gonna get some, some issues and some pushback from different producers of different sizes. Uh, however, there is an immediate need to alleviate the pain and the stress of many dairies, regardless of size. And then there's the long-term aspects of how do we move forward? Because with every challenge, is, as I've heard you say, with every challenge, there becomes an opportunity and so um, the capitalistic side of somebody um, does not want to take advantage of these opportunities for the wrong reasons. And so the way USDA has laid out their plans, I, I, I'm challenged with agreeing um, with some of it and, and how it's going to be administered, but yet uh, we have to be very cognizant that the impacts are varying on all sizes of operations. Um, so, the, the concern that this will force out more smaller producers versus larger producers, I think is, is a fallacy, to be quite mm. honest. Um, and the reason I say that is it, when it comes down to leverage and how each business manages itself or each dairy manages itself, um, you can be competitive. You can be cost competitive at any size and you can be uncompetitive at any size. So there could be small dairies that did some risk management, um, took advantage of some risk management opportunities, as well as large operations, or smaller large operations that did not take advantage of those. And I think um, the pain could be just as equal to both, and just as challenging. And ultimately, um, in a worst-case scenario, the downside of being that they are that they may not be here any longer. Yeah. So. Um, what gets mixed in the, the conversations of large and small is the fact that you know, it still comes down to individual management, and there are very, very good small dairies and there are very, very good large dairies, and there are some not so good ones in terms of where they sit today.
2: That's so. a key point. I mean, so you could be small, well managed, and ready to weather a crisis. And conversely, you could be big, poorly managed, and unprepared for a bad scenario like the one we're in. Um, that's interesting. And I totally take your point. Um, talk to me a little bit about, I mean, you, you mentioned this at the beginning, you guys have really invested a lot in sustainable practices, you know, doing right by the environment. What have you, what have you learned as a result of your investment in that? And where do we in Northeast Wisconsin have an opportunity to lead on, you know, ensuring we maintain our, our dominance in dairy? while also leading the way when it comes to protecting the environment?
4: Sure, so I think that any responsible dairy producer and almost any dairy producer that I know or talk to wants to take good care of the environment, wants to take good care of their animals and their livestock and their employees if they have them. Um, That's the recipe for success. Uh, You can't have a dairy if you don't have good water quality for the dairy. And you can't be part of the community if your community doesn't have good water quality, as an example. So I think that, you know, I, I want to use this analogy that I've used before. Um, There's somebody in the dairy equipment world that their company wanted them to move at one point, And he said, well, why would I move? There's nothing going on in the dairy industry that isn't going on in northeast Wisconsin or doesn't start in northeast Wisconsin. So the, awesome. the level and the legacy of dairy in, in Northeast Wisconsin is tremendous. We have the infrastructure in place. Um, we have to continue to adapt our practices and we have to be open to changing how we're doing things and what we're doing. And I think overall as an industry, um, we're, we're recognizing that we're making those changes. And I think in the future, um, we're gonna start seeing results from it. Now, some of the environmental or sustainable practices that we implement or have done for years uh, as an operation, at times they're hard to quantify initially from an economic standpoint, but you you wanna have faith and you wanna believe that long-term they are gonna pay off. And ultimately we have to find I don't even want to call it the happy medium. We have to find the productive and proactive way to coexist and be responsible partners in everything that goes on in our environment in Northeast Wisconsin.
1: So if
2: you had to kind of identify what the source of our strength is in Northeast Wisconsin, what what do you think it is? What does it boil down to at the end of the day? What makes us such a special place and why we dominate in dairy?
4: Well, one, I think it's the history um, of how long we've been doing it as a society and as a community in Northeast Wisconsin. I think it's our resolve. um, And I think that resolve is kind of embedded in us as not, and I'm not talking just in agriculture, just the overall commitment and work ethic from individuals in Northeast Wisconsin is strong and you've traveled the world. And I think you would echo that. Um, our resolve and our, our commitment to our work ethic and what we're doing is as strong as anywhere in the world. And then, you know, there's some resiliency with that, but also some innovation. And when I made the comment before about the individual that their company was asking to move, we're really innovative here in Northeast Wisconsin. And there's not a lot that's going on in the dairy industry that we're either not adapting or we're not the, quote unquote test pilot for and and people are watching what happens here
2: yeah so what would you say to that kid that comes to you let's say you're sitting in a bar in northeast wisconsin and a kid who just graduated high school or college hopefully college right yeah that's right well i guess if they were (laughs) if they were younger uh if they there's a weird no man's land between 18 and 21 You can't drink, but in Wisconsin, if you're with your parents when you're below 18, you're allowed to drink at bars, which is a unique feature of our state law um, and our culture. Uh, So they come up to you, this 21-year-old legal (laughs) recent college grad, and say, you know what? Though I majored in underwater basket weaving at Madison, I want to get into the dairy industry. What advice would you have for that student or recently recent grad
4: so the, the great thing about how our industry is evolving and one of the things that coincides with certain levels of consolidation is there are a variety of different jobs right so um, if you wanted to start your own dairy farm the barriers to entry are significant but you can do it and likewise if you have an interest in coming into the dairy industry and getting your feet wet and understanding it, um, there are a number of jobs and well, good paying and professional jobs that are associated with our industry. And so, um, you know, we're looking for hard workers, we're looking for people that are dedicated, and we're, we're looking for good learners, right? And I think one of the things that um, people want to say that this, this industry is complicated or it's simplified, right? Um, if you look at Mike Bloomberg, he would he, he would say that you can teach anybody to throw a seed in the ground. And I think the level of science and the level of technology that we implement today is very attractive to younger people and the younger workforce, and it's reinvigorating for the ones that have been in it a long time because we are changing things so much. So I would encourage them to um, understand the industry, and they can get their feet wet by being involved in dairy or in agriculture in a variety of different capacities and, and, and take it from there. But it's really a unique um, industry that we're in and it's continually evolving and there's so much technology and, and we're really changing the ways that we're doing things that um, I can see and I hope that it's attractive to a lot of people as the future grows.
2: I would imagine the use of robotics and autonomous systems is only going to increase exponentially. Um, I mean, think of something as simple as like, you know, you could potentially be using drones to collect soil samples on a large dairy farm. I mean, all sorts of cool high tech stuff that you guys do every single day that I think most people don't understand, particularly Mike Bloomberg, because their image of a dairy is like two people milking cows by hand.
4: Yeah, um, you know, we just have we have a new agronomist. Um, he's been with us for just over a year, and we've had a drone, and, and our old agronomist used it, but not to the extent that our new agronomist does. And and so that's one example. There's so many really neat things that are evolving. And yes, there are still dairies that have um, the the husband wife milking or. The, the son is involved or the daughter is involved and they're, they're, those dairies are still still around and very active and they need to be there and they need to exist um, but even on the smaller operations that doesn't prohibit any of them from adapting these technologies um, I would tell you that there are far more robotics on smaller operations than there are larger operations and so what you'll see is the smaller operations adapting those technologies and learning from them and growing them and then they will eventually work their way up into larger operations to become more efficient or to look at different ways of doing things but the technology will only adapt as we grow um and and i think regardless of size that's the neat thing about technology is that regardless of size you can utilize it
2: yeah um so i swear this will be my final question so Obviously, there's a lot of things Congress needs to do in terms of opening up markets abroad, fixing our broken immigration system so there are legal, legal guest worker visas, you know, finding ways to support ag in general. But for individual Wisconsinites who want to support the industry, what are some small things they may be able to do on a daily or weekly basis? Um, is it buying more fluid milk? What? What would be your ask of, of, of just the citizens of Northeast Wisconsin?
4: It, it, that's a great question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question and maybe it's just the, the times that we're in and, you, you know, we're, we're very, um, you know, times are very stressful for everybody and we feel for everyone that's affected by the coronavirus. And so you can't make yourself out to be a victim. If you're in the dairy industry, you have to, to, find a way to persevere and get through this um, because there are gonna be dairies that go out of business, there are gonna be restaurants that go out of business, there are gonna be hair salons that go out of business and it affects so many people. But one thing we still need to do is eat, right? And the the small thing that a, a consumer in Northeast Wisconsin can do is when they go to the grocery store is buy some cheese. Um, Buy an extra gallon of milk if you can, and and you're going to consume it. Don't buy it if you don't need it, certainly in these economic times, but dairy is a great source of protein. It's very, very healthy, Um, and those little things do add up, and they add up very quickly as our industry has had to adjust and shift in terms of how consumers are actually consuming dairy products now that the food service industry is out.
2: Awesome. So get out there, buy an extra gallon of milk, buy a bunch of cheese. Cheese, by the way, it, it's a great appetizer. It's a great part of your main course. It's even a great dessert when done the right way. There's always a way to incorporate more cheese into your diet. So I wholeheartedly agree with that. John Jacobs the Fourth, quattro, as we're going to be calling him from here on out, Thank you for your time, my friend. Uh, thank you for everything you guys are doing for Northeast Wisconsin. And I look forward to seeing you in person when it's allowed again. All right. Thank you, Congressman. Appreciate your time. Take it easy. Great insight from John Jacobs, and just a, a really important firsthand account of what's happening on dairy farms across Northeast Wisconsin. Um, And now I mentioned this earlier, but I'm sure you've all seen stories of dairy farmers having to dump their milk as Wisconsinites. We know how nutritious milk is, but how does dumping of this product impact our environment? Um, Next on that subject, we're going to hear from Chris Clayton from the Wisconsin DNR to discuss. We are lucky to be joined by Chris Clayton with the Wisconsin DNR. Chris Thanks for joining us. Tell us about how long you've been working for DNR and and what you do and your background.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. So I've been working for DNR actually since just about Thanksgiving, so not for a very long time at all. Um, For the five years before that, I worked for the Wisconsin Department of Ag Trade and Consumer Protection. Um, My background, um, I studied biology, um, and then several years later, I ended up... Uh, at UW-Madison, uh, seeking a, a master's degree in water resources management, and that's how I ended up here in Wisconsin. I'm that's from great. Illinois originally.
2: Oh, so we stole you from Illinois. Exactly. Have you exactly. renounced all your terrible sports allegiances as part of the <laughs> assimilation process?
1: Not completely. Okay,
2: I well, we don't to we have to get into that. <laughs> Let me just get, make sure my Packers uh, gear is showing there. There you uh, go. Uh, well, awesome, so you know obviously these have been uh, difficult a difficult stretch of years for the dairy industry, persistently low milk prices. We can talk about why that is, but you know one of the things I want to talk to you about is just kind of I feel like at the same time we've made a lot of progress in Wisconsin in terms of you know sustainable ag, mitigating uh, the environmental effects of certain agricultural practices, enhancing best practices like digesters, dewatering, crop rotation, things like that. So I mean, I tend to think we have a lot of forward leaning farmers that, you know, really care about the environment. So talk just a little, maybe put this in context of what you've seen in the ag industry, particularly as it pertains to, you know, how we protect the environment in the last few years.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I've certainly noticed over the last couple of years is, uh, Similar to what you're describing, there's been a lot of activity in terms of demonstration farms, uh, demonstration networks that are doing a lot of work to bring farmers together, get them out on field days, take a look at different conservation practices that perhaps they don't use on the farm themselves, but they might be interested, and they have questions, they want to know about these things, and so they're learning from their peers in, in these types of settings to understand how it might benefit their farm and their operation. So there's certainly a lot of that type of work, uh, producer-led groups as well, happening around the state, and a lot of that, of course, is centered up in your district as well.
2: Yeah. Well, now and now we're in the situation where you know we had some progress in terms of the broader dairy industry. Uh, USMCA had some good dairy provisions in it, but because of the unique effects of coronavirus. You know, Dairy farmers are having to do certain things uh, they're having to dump in many cases. Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, obviously no, no one in the dairy industry wants to dump milk um, but they're not being given a choice, but maybe talk about kind of the environmental effects of that, if you would.
1: Yeah. I mean, some of the things that we're worried about with uh, with milk disposal, emergency milk disposal in this case, obviously is, are the environmental impacts uh, potentially. So, you know, when this all started to happen, we started receiving phone calls right away from some different people asking, um, what's, what's the first thing I can do in this situation? What do I do with my milk? Uh, the easy answer to that, for, especially for larger farmers that have manure storage and have the space in their manure storage is to place it there first, so that it buys them some time where they can then um, spread that milk with the manure waste later on. Um, but the impact itself, I mean, milk, obviously, organic matter here, lots of nutrients in milk. Um, it's actually surprising to think about this, but it's a lot more potent um, as, as a pollutant than manure is. So if milk gets into a waterway, um, all the microorganisms that work to break down the milk, then once it gets into a waterway, are working that much harder to do so for milk versus even manure. Um, and so fish kills, are much higher probability if if milk reaches a waterway. And um, also there's just a lot more nutrients um, per the same, you know, per gallon, let's say, of milk versus versus manure. So the long-term impact, environmental impact, is potentially that you've got more nutrients entering water bodies. This is obviously something we want to prevent. We're looking to clean up our water bodies and not go backwards in a sense and introducing more nutrients to the environment where we end up with more algal blooms.
2: So milk, while good and nutritious for human beings, not, not as good for the soil or for the water or for the fish.
1: Exactly, but because it does have those nutrients in it and if a farmer is forced to, to have to dispose of it in some manner, it can be a valuable nutrient source for plants. Uh, now, there's a lot of considerations around there, a lot of them well above or over my head. Um, but, I mean, certainly one of the things we're working with farmers on and telling and, and telling farmers is that if they get to the point where they actually have to land apply their, their milk, um, then they should do it according to a nutrient management plan as a best practice and do it in conditions that are very low risk, right? So, non-saturated soils, flatter fields, um, do it at a time when it's not raining. Um, this can, you know, milk can actually provide nutrients to, to crops moving into the spring season, the planting oh, season here in the same way that manure does.
2: Okay. So, if, I mean, if you're in that unfortunate situation, you're being forced to emergency dump or, or land apply, which is probably the better phrase. There are ways to do it where you can mitigate the risks and prevent some of the negative externalities you were talking about.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: And does DNR, forgive me, I should know how this works, but does DNR work with individual farms that reach out on the development of such a plan or how does that work? Like let's say the farmers are listening to this right now and they're thinking, Oh man, I gotta, I have to land apply some of my milk, but I've never done this before is there, are there resources out there for them that they can work with somebody to come up with a plan?
1: Yeah. So in cases where a farmer is working with an agronomist, um, you know, putting together a nutrient management plan in a way where they're accounting for milk and the application of milk, just like they would with manure. So working with their agronomist on that, um, obviously the DNR, we, we are mostly having conversations around this particular issue with, uh, with uh, larger livestock operations that are permitted from the state, so those that have CAFO permits, um, and in those cases, our our field staff would be having those conversations with permittees about, you know, what's the best option for them and their farm if they've got milk that they need to dispose of, and then we have our nutrient management planners as well that they that both the farmer and the agronomist can work with, in order to have a, a nutrient management plan approved with with all of this in mind and obviously if they have to do things like um, bringing more more fields into their plan so that they have enough space and locations to actually land apply this milk then they can reach out to our staff and work with us on that.
2: So beyond the that sort of the uh the forced land application of milk, are there other ways in which coronavirus is affecting Wisconsin farmers' ability to do some of the environmental friendly things that they would otherwise want to do, whether it's crop rotation or is there other ways in which it's negatively impacting conservation practices?
1: Yeah, I appreciate the question. That's a big question. Um, The way I would put it, as long as the farmer and their consultant and um, all the other services that they depend on to operate their farm, as long as everyone is staying healthy through this crisis, then in the immediate term, it shouldn't really impact their ability to implement conservation practices. But when you look a little bit longer term, then we have questions right now about how this might be impacted a little bit. You know, one example I might have of that is um, there's probably several farms that are looking to, to construct Uh, hard conservation practices like a manure storage pit sometime this year or runoff control systems to a feed bunker things like that and um, depending on How the pandemic actually affects the the workforce some of those projects might be delayed I haven't heard of anything directly myself, but so that's an open question right now about whether or not those type those those practices are going to be implemented and constructed in a timely fashion Um, Looking out longer term, a lot of practices, of course, are are cost-shared, so there's some amount of money that comes from the government, either from the state or from the federal government, in order to put practices in place. Um, And then there's a little bit of cost-share or match that's offered by the farmer. In an economic downturn, um, you know, there's always the possibility that, depending on the farm, again, and how much they're impacted by all of this, um, they may not have the cash in order to put forward for conservation practices that they're planning to do for the next couple of years. But again, I mean, I, I just don't know yet how this is going to impact those types of decisions.
2: Yeah. Um, so going forward, I mean, maybe I'll put you on the spot to praise Wisconsin over your native Illinois. But, you know, I, I think we'll get through this. We got some broader structural problems with the the dairy market and milk prices and things like that. Uh, the, the decline in consumption of fluid milk. That hopefully we can kind of convince the next generation to pick up the slack. What do you think is kind of the unique source of of strength for Wisconsin dairy farmers? Why is it that we're Wisconsin? That Wisconsin is America's dairyland.
1: You know, a couple of things that I would point out that are that are strengths that I see is that first of all, you have a lot of farms, right? Traditionally over time. And I know that number has been coming down over the last several years, but there's still a lot of dairy farms out there of all different sizes. And so there's a, a, a lot of people involved in this and definitely a, a very definitive culture uh, around dairying in the state of Wisconsin. So I think that that overall lends a, a big strength moving forward and trying to you know grapple with some of these these environmental issues and conservation issues yeah
2: you know it's funny you bring that up I I'd asked a similar question to someone who's in the the broader kind of cheese industry and and they said it's family values it's it's all about that kind of family farm ethos that while we're, we have seen a disappearance of the smaller family farms it still endures in Wisconsin and I talked to a lot of people that you know, they don't work in the dairy industry, but they grew up working on the dairy farm. And that's just part of Wisconsin's culture. So really interesting you bring that up. So so going forward, if, if people want to learn more about what the DNR is doing, uh, or if they're interested in a career such as the one you've chosen, what advice would you give them? Where would you point them? You know, stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, if people are looking for resources having to do with um, the pandemic, the COVID-19, and everything that's happening here, um, and land spreading to milk in particular. So there's some really good resources out there. We have some on our website. I would direct them to the UW Extension website. I don't have the exact address. With, I could always share it, it with I mean, you later we'll put on. put it in
2: our, our highly sophisticated graphics department. We'll like flash <laughs> it on the screen or something. <laughs>
1: There you go, we can do that. Um, or I'll leave it to you to do that. Yeah, but we'll there's that. a really good resource out there that just lays out some of the things that I talked about earlier about the nutrient values and how they might work through this problem. Um, certainly they can reach out to us. We have some resources, for instance, on our, um, on our website, both uh, the, the webpage having to do with CAFO permitting and also agricultural non-point source pollution. Um, So they know who to reach out to and who they might contact if they if they do have if they don't already know that right now.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Chris. Hey, thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you for educating us on the intersection of of ag and and the environment. And thanks for the work you're doing at at DNR. And uh, let's just say the bears suck. Go pack up. All right. See you, man. And that is a wrap of this very special edition of the New Look Podcast. Thank you to all of our contributors who participated. We will be back Monday with the next episode of the New Look Podcast. Thank you for listening.